Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 39 to 46. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 46. Uh, Every year, uh, there is a vigorous debate that goes on uh, in our culture, at least here in America. Maybe it happens in other cultures as well. And it's a debate I'm sure that you have had some point in your family or with your friends. And that is the question of how early is too early to start listening to Christmas music? How early is too early to start listening to Christmas music? Uh, Our tradition in our family has always been that you don't listen to Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. That's been the rule that we've lived by. In fact, our family travels to North Carolina every year, and one of the things that we always think about is as we're driving home the weekend after Thanksgiving, we start listening to Christmas music. And I can remember specifically there's a spot when you hit in Alexandria, Virginia, I can see it in my mind, a spot that you hit on 95 in Alexandria, Virginia, where you can start to hear the Baltimore radio stations. And so when we know, when we hit that spot on our way home from traveling on 95, we hit that button and we turn on the Christmas music and we welcome the Christmas season after Thanksgiving. But to our surprise this year, that radio station uh, flipped the switch to Christmas music a week before Thanksgiving and our tradition was ruined this year as a result of it. So how early is too early to start listening to Christmas music? We have those discussions in churches as well. When is it too early to start listening to Christmas music? Um, And maybe that debate rages on in your family as well. We all probably have strong opinions about it. But one one of the things I think we can all agree on is that music and song plays a very big role in the Christmas season. Wade mentioned it before, from caroling to congregational singing to radio stations, music plays a really big part of the Christmas season. Uh, Every year, and I say this every year, it's remarkable to me uh, of all the, the Christmas songs that are played in the retail stores, in the shopping malls that we go to, to do our Christmas shopping. And uh, if you stop and listen sometimes to the content of those Christmas songs, there's just an absolute beautiful expression of the gospel in them, doctrines of the gospel that are sung, one we just sang, the first Noel, and, and here we are in Target or in shopping malls or whatever it is, and the gospel is being proclaimed through song in these shopping malls and in these places, and it's remarkable about how clear the truth of God comes through if only we have the ears to hear them when we are in those moments. So this year, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a sermon series, as Wade mentioned, on the songs of Christmas. If you look at all the gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can see elements of the Christmas story, but you see also a surprisingly large amount of songs that come along with the gospel narrative. Uh, You see Zachariah's song, you see uh, Simeon's song. This morning, we're going to look at at Mary's song. And what it reminds us is that maybe this event was too big for words to accurately capture. And so instead, these people sang songs to give expression to what was going on 
in their hearts. Mike Cosper, who writes about this, says, songs provide language for experiences that often leave us speechless. And so this year, we are going to look at those songs, starting with Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to be reading her specific song is verses 46 through 56, but I'm going to start in verse 39, just so we can get the context of of Mary's song here. So Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb left for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones And exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Father, we are just so thankful for this Advent season, Lord, and all that it means where we uh, reflect on how um, your children waited for centuries for you to come and provide deliverance and liberation. And Father, we get to look back on that event, and through the Advent season, we remind ourselves not just of their waiting, but also of the waiting we have for your second Advent, your second coming. In many ways, we are a people who live in between those two comings. And so as we anticipate your second coming, we also align ourselves with those who look forward to your first coming. We remember, we reflect upon the power of the incarnation where you became one of us. I pray now, Father, as we think about uh, Mary's song, that her heart would be exposed to us and that our hearts would sing with her the beauty of your redemption. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I think one of the risks that we run every year uh, when it comes to Christmas is the, the temptation or the tendency to uh, sterilize Christmas a little bit. 
And I think probably the biggest culprit of that are these nativity scenes that we sometimes set up in our homes or we sometimes set them up in churches or you see them sort of out there in the public as well. And if you pay attention to these nativity scenes, I think uh, sometimes they're a little too perfect. Uh, Everybody has their place and everybody seems so happy. Nobody seems upset that this newborn baby just moments old is laying in a food trough. That seems to bother no one in the nativity scene, and that's, that, yet that's exactly what was happening at the first Christmas. If you a- actually look at these birth narratives, it is anything but sterile. Uh, it is anything but clean. It is surprising and shocking in so many ways. It is messy. It is scandalous. It is full of all sorts of motions, absolutely extreme joy but also moments of extreme sadness. It's a complex event. And to understand its complexity, I think it's important for us first to sort of zoom out and understand what was going on when this Christmas story happened. One of the things that we learned from Luke chapter 2 is this. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You've probably heard those words before. We read them in the gospel narratives all the time, but sometimes it's easy to miss the significance of what that verse means. That verse is a painful reminder to the Jews of their lack of freedom at this moment. You see, the Jews at this moment were a conquered people group, and they had been conquered for hundreds and hundreds of years. But the fact that the Romans were in charge now was something new, something deeper, something altogether different. This was a brand new emperor, one of the first emperors in the Roman world. He ruled a vast land that was full of all sorts of cultures and all sorts of ethnicities in this first of empires. And because it was an empire with an emperor, they had no uh, hesitance to rule with all sorts of cruelty and insensitivity. And that was, of course, true of the Romans. What that meant for Jews, just like Mary, was that they lived under the thumb of an oppressor who lived far away. And at any moment, that oppressor could make a decision that would affect the lives of millions of people, everyone in the empire. And that included, in this instance, forcing everyone, and I mean everyone, forcing everyone to be registered. Think about the last time you received a jury summons in the mail and how annoying that was, right? There's a few people out there that love serving on juries, and I don't begrudge those people love serving on juries, but I'll tell you, when I get that jury summons, it is annoying to me. It's not something I love to do because it's disruptive, right? But imagine the disruption that this imposed upon Mary and Joseph. Didn't matter that they were poor. Didn't matter if they were injured. It didn't matter if Mary was with child. It didn't matter if you had to travel a great distance in order to be registered. It didn't matter if there was an infrastructure in place to handle all these people traveling everywhere. All those things didn't matter. You had to obey. You had to. This would have been remarkably frustrating for the Jews. A new emperor was imposing his will upon them, and you either had to comply or you could, at worst, forfeit your life 
for disobeying the emperor's command. And so the political situation was cumbersome at best. That's probably the best adjective you could use for it, but probably the most uh, appropriate adjective was oppressive. This was oppressive on the Jews. It was oppressive on Mary and Joseph. And so that's a zooming out picture, but if you zoom in and you look at Mary, our songwriter, her circumstances were anything but easy. Of course, Mary would have felt that oppression of the Romans. I'm sure it would have frustrated her. It would have been a a burden upon her. But that's not the only frustration and burden that Mary would have felt in her life and in her situation. You see, in the ancient world, for women, it was a very sort of uh, patriarchal society, and life was never easy for women in the ancient world, no matter what their political circumstances were in. Because in ancient and patriarchal societies, like this one, a woman's value was always rooted in her ability to produce male heirs. Now, we look back at that probably rightly and get very frustrated with it, but that was the the society in which she lived in. And what that meant was that young girls would be betrothed to young men around the age of 13 years old. Likely, Mary was 13 years old when this story happens. Joseph was probably 15 years old. So as soon as a young girl could bear children, she would be betrothed to a young man. And that betrothal process was often a very elaborate process, and there was all sorts of rituals. It could sometimes uh, take upwards of a year from start to finish, and there were all these sort of hoops you had to jump through and rituals that you had to go through in the betrothal process. But for a woman, before and during that process of betrothal, their number one job was to maintain their purity, to maintain their virginity. And if that would be lost, if for some reason that was taken away, then that young woman would be cast out, considered unclean, and considered absolutely worthless in her society, undervalued and not cared for. So imagine Mary's shock, knowing all this, imagine Mary's shock when an angel visits her and tells her at 13 years of age, likely, that she was with child. Imagine Joseph's shock when he hears that the woman that he has been betrothed to is with child. You see, from an earthly perspective, this news that Mary received from the angel would be shattering. Life for her would have been difficult under Roman oppression. Of course, Mary and Joseph were poor teenagers from a nothing town, but now, thanks to this announcement from the angel, Mary has lost the only thing that brings her value in her culture. She might lose her betrothed in the process. Certainly, she would lose the the respect of those who are around her. And what this announcement meant for her is that for the rest of her life, people would whisper after she left the room. There would be all sorts of innuendos and scandals surrounding her for the rest of her life. People would assume that she was some sort of loose woman. And so from a very earthly perspective, this would be wildly disruptive and earth-shattering for Mary. 
After all, who would believe her story of a visit from an angel? So what does Mary do? She runs to her cousin, Elizabeth. She goes and visits her for three months, but she knows even after those three months, she's going to have to return home. And when she returns home, she will be showing, and everybody will be wondering what has happened here. So from a very earthly perspective, God and this disruption had ruined her life. There was no going back. Nothing would ever be the same for young Mary. And so when she breaks into song, you would expect it to be a sad song. You would expect it to be a a, a sort of depressed song or a song that is even angry against God for this disruption. And if you pay attention to the scriptures, there's plenty of sad songs there. There's plenty of depressed songs. There's plenty of songs that lament or are even angry against God. Just look at the Psalms and you see all of those emotions displayed. And so you would expect with Mary that that's exactly what the content of this song would be. Sad, depressed, angry, lamenting, but it isn't any of those things. Instead, what we see is it is a song of joy. It's a song of joy. My soul magnifies the Lord, Mary sings, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see, from an earthly perspective, Mary's life had been ruined, but instead she sings a song of joy. Why? why? What What could make Mary so joyful in this circumstance? And the answer is because of her steadfast love in God, her steadfast faith in God, and His steadfast love for her. You see, for all of Mary's life, she had been trained and discipled to look for a Savior who would one day come. And because she was a woman of faith, that was her deepest hunger. It was her deepest yearning for that Savior to come, and now she receives the announcement that yes, indeed, the wait is over. That Savior is now coming. And so for her, no matter how much it disrupted her life, she could not contain her joy that the Savior was coming, that the Savior was imminent. Now, I'm sure that for Mary, she had all sorts of expectations for this Savior. And yes, I'm sure she expected this Savior to come in might and to come in power so that he could kick out the Romans and save the Jews from their oppression and from their poverty. She was excited about the deliverance that this Savior would bring to her and her people. In fact, her song is actually rooted in many other deliverance songs that you read about in the Old Testament. What that shows us is that Mary knew her scriptures. She knew her scriptures. Her her song actually here is, is a collage, as one commentator put it, a collage of all sorts of different songs that you read about in the Old Testament. But in fact, there is a great resemblance between her song and another song that you read in the book of Exodus chapter 15. Uh, her song in many ways is a retread 
of an older song, which is very common in Christmas songs, I've learned, right? How many versions of Last Christmas are there out there? Probably five million of them at this point, because that's all we do. We just retread old songs. Well, in many ways, Mary is retreading an old song from Exodus chapter 15. If you know anything about Exodus 15, God has just delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians powerfully by parting the Red Sea. And then as soon as the Israelites are out, God brings the waters of judgment down and destroys the entire Egyptian army. And Moses rejoices and sings this song in Exodus 15 about the powerful arm of God. You see, Mary knew this story, and she knew that song. And so this song reveals just how much she knew about that moment. And now she brings that moment thousands of years later to bear on her moment because she's excited that this child will deliver them from the Romans and bring their people back to all the promises that God has for them. But this would be better. This would be better than what God did through Moses. And so this thrilled her heart beyond compare. So that was her expectation of this Savior, but she also knew that there was going to be more to this Savior than just might and strength and power. And that's why she sings in verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You see, Mary understood that more than anything, she needed mercy from this Savior. She understood that that the oppression of sin and the challenges and frustrations of sin were far worse than the oppression of the Romans. And she knew that this Savior would come to deliver her from her own sins. All of this she grasped in faith. She anticipated a great deliverer but she also anticipated a merciful Savior. And so even though from an earthly perspective, the circumstances of her life were falling apart all around her, in spite of all that, her faith in God gave her joy, no matter how difficult the circumstances. You know, later in Luke chapter 2, the baby is born, And uh, the shepherds come and visit Mary and Joseph, and uh, the wise men come and visit Mary and Joseph, and and everybody around Mary is celebrating and throwing parties and giving gifts, and uh, everybody around her is celebrating. But it says in verse 19 that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. It's as if everybody else is at the party and celebrating and sort of Mary's in the corner just taking it all in, pondering it, treasuring it in her heart. And so for centuries, people have wondered, why is Mary, why is she pondering? Why is she celebrating? Why is she dancing like everyone else? Why did Mary react so differently? And I think part of the reason is this, because Mary had already done her celebrating. She had already done her celebrating. She celebrated a chapter ago when the angel had revealed all this to her. Everybody else was celebrating when they saw the actual baby, but Mary had already celebrated. She had celebrated by faith months ago 
when the truth of God had been revealed to her. And so she becomes the picture of what faith truly is. Faith in that which is unseen and the joy that comes from that faith even in the midst of all of the disruptions. Even though her circumstances would now be beyond challenging, as one commentator put it, Mary's feelings are clear. God owes her nothing while she has received everything from him. His steadfast love had found her. And so God is at work in the world. God is at work in her heart, even in the midst of the scandal and even in the midst of the mess. So the question for us becomes this. How might God be working in the midst of your mess? How might the Savior be visiting you through some sort of holy disruption? Because in many ways, that is the work of the gospel. It strips us down before it can ever build us up. How might that deliverer be visiting you this holiday season? What song will you be singing? Some people have argued that the Bible starts with a song and it ends with a song. It starts with the song of creation and that God sings this poetic song that brings about the birth of creation. And at the very end of the Bible, you see another song. That is the song of consummation, the song of heaven at the end of all things. Just the other day, I was listening to a live album from a band that I listened to. And, uh, you know, these live albums can, can be sometimes good, sometimes not so good. But this is a great one. And it was a concert that happened, I think it was in Buenos Aires, and there was at least probably 50,000 people in attendance at this concert. But the band sings in English, you're in Buenos Aires, these people don't even know English, and yet they can sing the song word for word. And the, 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 uh, the singer did one of those things that, that people do in live concerts, and they at one point get to the chorus, and they turn around, they stick the microphone out and let the crowd do the singing. And whoever did the sound audio did an amazing job because what you hear is, is 50,000 people full-throated in their singing of this, uh, this chorus of this song that everybody knows. And if you listen to it, you imagine, yourself, you imagine to yourself what it, would, it must have been like to be there. It sort of sends chills down your spine as you think about the emotion and the volume of what that moment must have been. And then as I thought about that, I thought about the eternal heavenly song that will be sung at the end of all things, recorded for us in the book of Revelation. Thought about all the saints of God, past, present, and future, from all tongues and tribes and languages, singing the praises of God. What an amazing picture and reality that will be for us. In fact, I think probably the joy of heaven, the joy of eternity, will be the fact that God's people will be singing new songs about the things that God is doing for all of eternity, full-throated, full of joy, full of praise at the greatness of our God and Savior. What a glorious day that will be. For now, we wait. It's what Advent is. It's looking back at what Christ has done and looking forward to that heavenly song that we will all sing together. So let's wait together as we celebrate by faith 
what God is doing, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Let's pray.